Please remain standing for our epistle lesson and also our sermon text from the letter of 1 John, beginning in verse 1. Again, give your ear to God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh to be the propitiation for our sins, to reconcile us to you. And we thank you for your word that we have before us. We pray that as we consider it today, that you may reveal your son to us, reveal more of yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There are many things, I suppose, but one thing that distinguishes Christianity from, all, uh, from other religions and all philosophies is its insistence, its utter uh, dependence even on the historicity of its claims. The historicity of its claims. Uh, for example, if you, could, if you could show that the accepted history of the founder of Buddhism was not actually true, it re- wouldn't really change anything essential about its theology or its practices. But what the Apostle John writes about here and what we celebrate every Advent is historical in nature. It's a historical claim that the eternal Son of God was born into the world that he took on humanity in order to redeem us from our sins. But this also means that another thing that makes Christianity different from every other religion and philosophy is a central tenet that God can be known. In fact, it is not only possible to know God, but that this is what he desires. It's the whole point of Jesus' coming. In John's Gospel, which we read just a moment ago, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, the Bible teaches that God created us for fellowship with him in the Garden of Eden. 
and that that fellowship was lost, not because of God's um, un, being unknown or God's hiddenness, but because of our sin. And all the prophets and all of the scriptures look forward to the restoration of that fellowship in the garden which we once enjoyed. Jeremiah records God's promise that there would come a time, he says, when no more shall every man uh, teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The incarnation then is the beginning of the fulfillment of this great promise and this great hope of Scripture. It's the theme that John takes up, which is knowing God or fellowship with God, having fellowship with God. And so as we consider the first chapter um, into the second chapter of his epistle, we're going to look at what he says about fellowship with God. We're going to see the nature of our fellowship with God, the effects that it has in our lives and the basis of knowing God, the basis of our fellowship with God. So for those of you that take notes, the nature of our fellowship with God, the effects that fellowship has in our life, and the basis of having that fellowship. First, the nature of our fellowship with God. What, what is the fellowship that John is talking about? Well, one way to get it is simply look at the word that John uses to describe it. Fellowship in verses 3 and 6. The Greek word is koinonia. Maybe it's a word that you've heard before. As an adjective, it just means something that's common or something that's shared in common, like a common language or the common cold, right? This is something that we all share. And our English word fellowship uh, does a good job of mapping onto the Greek concept in that um, it's, it's something that you have a share in, something that you participate in. And when it stands alone, like John uses it, it just means a shared life. The fellowship he describes is a shared life. And we can see that's the idea that John is getting at, because later in verses 6 and 7, he describes it as walking with God, as communing with God in the light. And in chapter 2, verse 4, which we didn't read, he calls it knowing God. So to have fellowship with God is to know him, having a shared life with Jesus, not merely to know about God, but to know him. Now, what that means is that there's, a, there's, a, there's an objective and a subjective dimension to what John is talking about. It's objective in that we have fellowship with a particular person. John does not write about any and every religious experience or thought or doctrine that one might have. He says in the opening verses, that which we have heard, which we've seen, which we've looked upon and handled, that person, that particular person is the one that we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and with him. It's fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's a fellowship grounded upon the objective apostolic witness. That witness today, which is recorded for us in the scriptures. You can't have fellowship with the true God, with the living God, in other words, unless you know the God of the Bible, as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And that's why it's so dangerous when, when people detach their thoughts and their experiences about God from the scriptures. Because when you do that, what you're doing is substituting what God has said about himself for your own thoughts about what God might be like. You're creating a God in your own image. You're committing what the Bible calls idolatry. 
And so how do I know if I'm doing that? How do I know if I'm creating a God in my own image? Well, one thing to know is that if you're not a regular reader of the Bible, if you're not a regular student of the scriptures, then you must be doing it of necessity. We get our ideas about God from somewhere, and if it's not from the Bible primarily, then it's from other, some other source of our choosing. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't read good books about uh, the Bible or books about theology, but it does mean that the Bible is the place where God has revealed himself infallibly and is our highest form of authority as we understand who God is. Another way that this might be used, if you read the Bible, maybe even read the Bible regularly, but you're never surprised or delighted or offended by what God reveals about himself in the scriptures. If you can read the Bible without from time to time being surprised about what it reveals about God or feeling the pinch that comes when it exposes your sin, it may be that you're not actually engaging with what God says about himself. Every relationship involves some degree of surprise and difference. The only person who acts and thinks and feels and believes exactly as you do is the one that looks out at you from the mirror. And this is true even in human relationships. Every marriage begins with some extended discussion of why the socks are put in that drawer. Right? You think that you're normal and the way that you grew up is normal until you get married and you meet another person who has an entirely different way of doing life, and now you find yourselves together. Every relationship involves some degree of surprise and difference. And that's true in human relationships. How much more is that true with the living, eternal God who is holy and different from us? My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. God is far more gracious and kind and loving and holy and righteous and good than any of us know. And the student of scripture is always learning something new about him and about himself or herself. So there's an objective aspect to what John is talking about. Our fellowship is grounded in God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ in the Bible. Now, having said that, there is also a subjective dimension of fellowship with God. And I suspect that for most of us in the room, and I'll include myself in that assessment, this is probably more of where we struggle. And when I say a subjective dimension, I don't mean, again, that we're making our own thoughts about God, whatever we feel like. But I mean that John tells us that fellowship with God involves an experience of God. You see, John doesn't say that he learned a body of truth about God, but that he had met God in bodily form. And he invites us to know that same person. He says in verse 3 and 4, That which we have seen, and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You see, John 
invites us to fellowship with himself, to know him, to have a shared life with him, to have shared beliefs with him. And he says the fellowship that he has is with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. He uses the same word to describe knowing and sharing life with himself as he does with knowing and sharing life with God. It's the same word. Fellowship, then, is not merely knowing things about God, but to know Jesus, the one whom John had seen and heard and handled and is still present by his spirit. God came in the flesh in order to be known. That's why John describes it as knowing God in chapter 2 and walking with him and having a shared life or fellowship with Jesus and the Father by the Spirit. The opposite of what John describes, merely knowing facts about God, knowing things about God, happens all the time in our culture today with public figures or celebrities. With the internet or social media, you can know a lot, you can know a ton about any given celebrity or public figure that you want. You can know their background, you can know their, uh, the schools that they went to, you can know about their childhood, you can potentially know where they're going on vacation, or even maybe what they had for breakfast that morning. But without spending time with that person, you don't actually know them. You know lots of things about them, but you can't possibly know them apart from a shared life together to some degree. Now, what John describes in the opening chapter of his letter is a subjective experience of objective truth, an experience of God. The Puritan John Owen described it this way. He says, quote, We see it by daily experience that very many, very many have little taste and sweetness and relish in their souls of those truths which they yet savingly know and believe. But when we are taught by the Spirit, Oh, how sweet is everything we know of God. When we find any of the good truths of the gospel come home to our souls with life, vigor, and power, giving us gladness of heart, transforming us into the image and likeness of it, the Holy Ghost is then at work, is pouring out his oil. What John describes involves a head knowledge, but it goes beyond head knowledge. Head knowledge of God is not a bad thing. It's like the logs of your campfire. If you take away the logs out of your campfire, take away the fuel, then the fire goes out. You can't have a fire without fuel. However, you can't have warmth and light or s'mores from stacking logs together. No matter how many logs you stack together, you won't get light and heat. Head knowledge must be empowered by the Holy Spirit and applied to the heart. Head knowledge is insufficient without the Spirit's inward application to our heart. The experience of objective truth is what John means by a present fellowship with God, which is what he invites us to, that you may have the same fellowship that I have with Jesus. So if you take that, if you put that together, the way that plays out in our lives today is through Bible reading and prayer. But how different is that kind of prayer of discussing discussing the happenings in your world and in your own inner life with a God who is present, 
than sending a list of requests to a very distant deity and hoping for a response. But if that's not your normal experience, if you are, like John Owen described, part of the very many who savingly know and believe the truth and the truths of the Bible, and yet it is not um, often your experience, take heart. Because John is telling us the incarnation shows that all the initiative of establishing a relationship with you is on God's side. That's why God came, in order to be known. But we must continue to go to the Bible. We must continue to seek him. J.I. Packer asks and answers the question, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And he answers it this way. The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God leading to prayer and to praise. He says, the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. We turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God leading to prayer and praise. So it is to take the objective apostolic witness to Jesus Christ that John gives us, the truths of the Bible, and turn them into a matter of meditation before God, with God, to think upon them deeply, to imagine them, and to discuss them with the God who is near. That's what fellowship with God looks like. Okay, then, that's, that's the nature of our fellowship with God. That's, that's what John is describing what kind of effects does that have in someone's life? Or maybe we could put it another way. What difference does it make? If you have a present fellowship with God, what will that do in your life? Well, the first thing is that it will draw you into fellowship with other Christians. He says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And because God is light, he says in verse 7, If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The closer that you get to Jesus, the closer you get to those getting closer to Jesus. All right, that's the brain twister, right? I'll I'll say it again. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you will be to those also getting closer to Jesus. Right? It's easily demonstrated on the physical plane. If I said we're all going to get up and go down to the pillar room, all right, as I leave, and go down to the pillar room. And Elder Peterson gets up and goes and leaves and goes down to the pillar room. And Shalee gets up and leaves and goes down to the pillar room. As we all go towards the pillar room, we're going to necessarily be getting closer to one another. And this is one reason why you hear us continually talk in a, in, about an application of membership in the local church. Because what John calls us to is fellowship with one another centered around Jesus. That means you cannot experience the blessings and joy of fellowship that John describes here unless you spend meaningful time with other Christians and that that shared life that you have is centered around the Lord. I recently heard a pastor say that Christian friends are those who play and pray together. Christian friendship is built on playing and praying together, sharing life and being centered on the Lord. So 
So one thing to ask yourself would be this. Do you spend meaningful time with other Christians, especially Christians in this church body? And if your knowledge of God and your present experience of him makes up any significant piece of those relationships. In other words, what would change about those relationships that you have with others in this room and other Christians that you know if Jesus did not exist? Not the tenets of Christianity, like we said at the beginning, but the historical claims that Jesus Christ, the person, if he did not exist, what would change about your relationship with those in this room or other Christians that you know? Of course, we also know that habitual sin or lack of vulnerability also impedes this fellowship that John talks about. That's why John says the second thing, the second effect of fellowship with God in our life means an increasing uh, personal holiness. Increasing personal holiness. And it could not be otherwise because the God with whom we have fellowship, as he tells us in verse 5, is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And then he says in 6 through 9, various things that flow from that. He says you can't have fellowship with light if you walk in darkness. That is, if you are in habitual or unrepentant sin. But in that section, in that section from 6 through 9, I want you to notice the premium that John puts on honesty as a condition for being in the light. Those who walk in the darkness, he says, lie and do not practice the truth in verse 6. Particularly, they lie by saying they have no sin and deceive themselves, he says in verse 8. So what is required for fellowship with God and others then is honesty. True honesty, not necessarily sinlessness. As I said before, all relationships involve some degree of vulnerability in order to have them. And what's striking about this section is the personal relationship that, that John describes, even as he, as he describes our sanctification and our increase in holiness. And it's that personal nature of his description here that distinguishes sanctification from self-improvement. Self-improvement is when we identify some principles or practices that we would like to live up to. We create a plan in order to try to live up to them and, and go for it and try to attain it. But sanctification, like John describes here, while it involves outward effort, is the result of God working the truth in me as I believe and encounter him. In my experience, I work out my salvation, Paul says, because God is at work in me. No one in the scriptures with a tender heart is able to enter into God's presence, to have an experience of God. That is to come into the light, as John says here, and remain unchanged. You might think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 as he perceives the Lord high and lifted up and sees his glory. He's convicted of his sin. He says, woe to me. We might think of Peter uh, in the boat in Luke 5 in the catch of fish. As he perceives something of the glory of Jesus, he falls to his knees and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Or we might think of Paul on the road to Damascus as he encounters the living Christ in a burst of glory and is convicted and repents. 
what John is describing here in 6 through 9 is simply the scriptural pattern of encounter with God, which is an encounter with God, a conviction, a realization of sin, cleansing, and then ascending to be on God's mission. Which leads us to the third effect of fellowship with God in your life, which is a desire for others to have that same fellowship. He says in 3 and 4, again, That which we've seen and heard we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Did you notice that? Verse 3, he gives you the reason for his letter. One of the reasons that he writes is so that you too can have the fellowship that he has. And so I want to say that if you don't desire for others to know God the way that you do, it may be that your present fellowship with God is lacking. And I know some people are asking, well, what are you, what are you saying? That if we're, not, you know, if we're not out on the street corner evangelizing or, or bugging our coworkers about Jesus, that we, don't, that we really don't know God? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you don't have the desire for others to know Jesus, you don't have the fellowship with Jesus that John did. Yes, John had a commission to preach, from the risen Christ, but John also had an inner compulsion that others would know the risen Christ. When he and Peter are, um, are beaten by the Sanhedrin and commanded not to preach in Jesus' name anymore, they respond by saying, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He wanted others to know what he had. And friends, we become evangelists for absolutely any good experience that we have if you're in a group of people and you're the first one to see that burning amazing sunset in the distance what do you do you turn to everyone you say look at that see it right it doesn't matter whether it's a beautiful sunset or great music or good food our joy is only complete when we share that joy in common with others, when we have fellowship over that which gives us joy. That's why he says in verse 4, I'm writing that your joy may be complete. There's an interesting, some of your Bibles probably have it, there's interesting manuscript notes, whether um, the Greek words are really similar, whether he's saying, I want your joy to be complete or our joy to be complete, but the idea is the same. He wants them to experience the joy that he has in Christ so that they can have fellowship over Jesus together. It's that desire for shared joy that makes us natural evangelists, right? So many of you have heard uh, me sing the praises of Polish food, especially around Advent Christmas time, right? Because it's special to me, and it's really, really good. And if you don't like Polish food, you're wrong, okay? Because I will withstand any amount of persecution you give me because I have tasted the joy, right? This is what it's like if you know Jesus, if your present experience of him is one that brings you joy. You will withstand persecution and you will be a natural evangelist. And this is in contrast to um, other motivations and other types of evangelism that Christians engage in. There's uh, one that I call multi-level marketing evangelism, where uh, you are told that Jesus requires you to tell others about him and that you should recruit others to tell 
uh, others about Jesus and, and that he requires and you have to go out and do it. Or um, another that I call political debate, debate evangelism, where you're convinced that there are others out there who are wrong in their religious views and what God requires is that you correct them of the right views. All right, these are both common motivations and many Christians will try one or the other or both and become frustrated and end up giving up and telling others about the Lord. And there's a piece of truth in both of them. Yes, there is a command. Our, our commission is to make disciples, to go into all the world and make disciples. And there are certain propositions, objective things that others must know and believe about the Lord. But it is the motivation of personal experience with Christ that makes evangelism natural, spontaneous, easy, and enduring. So how do you get that? How do you have that? Well, that's the last thing. Finally, he tells us the basis for our fellowship in God in verses 1 and uh, 2 of chapter 2. You see, the incarnation wasn't because the Son of God was lonely and he became a man so he could talk with us and spend time with us. Our separation from God was not first and primarily physical, but because of our sin. Jesus took on a human body and a human life so he could lay it down in sacrifice for you and me. He came to die. John tells us in verse 2 that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And the idea of a propitiation is of that of a sacrifice that satisfies divine wrath and grants divine favor. The eternal life was made manifest so that he could be handled roughly so that he could be beaten and crucified, so that he could be looked upon in the cross with faith, so that we could hear his cries of anguish and his pronouncement of utter certainty, it is finished. The Father loved you before the foundation of the world and gave Christ as the expression of that love. Christ came to be the propitiation you need in order to be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ took on flesh, in other words, so that he could die in your place to redeem you. And if that were not enough, Jesus, or John tells us in verse 1 that the risen Christ now stands as our advocate in heaven. We heard about this last week, that Jesus is alive and Jesus intercedes for us. The idea is that of a, of a defense attorney, that Jesus pleads before the Father for you constantly. But what Jesus appeals to is not, the uh, is not on the basis of a, a vague notion of mercy, of God's uh, goodness or his kindness, but on the basis of the propitiation that he made for you. He pleads his own righteousness on your behalf that's given to you by faith, which is why he says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He doesn't say that God is kindly and merciful, although he is kind and merciful. He says that God is faithful to forgive you of your sins, that he is just to forgive you of your sins because Jesus took those sins upon himself in his physical body that he took on on the cross in order to die under the wrath of God for them and rise from the dead for you. Christ's propitiation and Christ's intercession. 
his sacrifice and his prayer, his death and his resurrection on your behalf, in other words, is the basis of your objective fellowship with God, and it is the basis of your subjective fellowship with God. If we are to do what John Owen said and and to take the truths of Scripture and meditate on them such that the Holy Spirit makes them real in our lives, the first and primary one that you should do is to think about Christ's propitiation on your behalf. Believe it, think on it, meditate on it until the Spirit presses it home into your heart. And then you will have the experience, the fellowship with God that John describes. And that will begin to really take hold in your life. Think about all the ways that would apply with the evangelism. If you were experiencing the joy of being forgiven and reconciled to God constantly, how natural and easy and spontaneous and excited would you be to share what you're having with God with other people, with other Christians, even uh, sharing what you're learning in your Bible time with others? His blood sacrifice is what cleanses us from sin. It's what makes us holy as we walk in the light. Knowing that you are radically and completely accepted by God provides the grace that you need for the honesty, for intimacy and vulnerability to have true fellowship with one another. All that is to say, if this, if Christ's death and resurrection were to become real to you, and subjective in your experience, you will have what John has. You'll have a shared life with Jesus. You'll have fellowship with God. So let's pray and ask him to make that real to us. Father, we thank you that Jesus came and that we can know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent through him, through his death and resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would take the truth of the gospel and all the truths about yourself in the scripture, and that you would make them real to us. Lord, teach us, we pray, to have fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.